Welcome back to Nubian Tigers Talk, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians. I'm Ray Smalton. Today on our show, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take advantage of the expertise in the law that my regular co-host, Professor Michelle Jacobs, possesses and discuss the topic of social justice in America and how women of color are treated by the criminal justice system. So to help us on the subject, we've invited back Dr. Katrina Peters, one of the Princeton Nubian Tigresses, to co-host this week. And Dr. Peters is the clinical professor of psychiatry at UCSF uh, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital, and is currently the medical director of inpatient forensic psychiatry. So Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, Ray. I'm thrilled to be back. So uh, Katrina, to kickstart, I-, I thought we could briefly discuss the impact of the murder of Micaiah Bryant by police officer Nicholas Reardon of the Columbus, Ohio Police Department. And that murder took place almost immediately after the George Floyd verdict was announced. And in some of the things that I've been reading over the last you know, couple of months, I think this excerpt from an article in the online publication Vox sets things up uh, you know, fairly well. It goes, but the cries for justice that applied to George Floyd did not ring out as loudly for Bryant. Even after it was discovered that Bryant was living in foster care, that she was in the middle of a fight with older women when police arrived, and that she was allegedly the one who summoned the police for help, people, some of the same people who called for justice in Floyd's case, used police talking points to justify the four bullets that Reardon unloaded into Bryant's chest. She was brandishing a knife, many pointed out, which meant that the black women or black women in general needed to be protected. So Katrina, in your psychiatric work over the years, have you been, have you ever been exposed to similar incidents such as this senseless murder of Micaiah Bryant? Yes, Ray. Uh, One of my first cases I consulted on as a forensic psychiatrist comes to mind, the case of Teresa Sheehan. There were tragic similarities, but important differences. It also involved a woman of color, an Asian woman, a knife, and the police, who were called for a person who was in a serious mental health crisis to be taken to the hospital. Instead, she was shot seven times after police forced entry into her apartment. She survived, but was charged with five felonies for assaulting the police. The case ultimately went to the Supreme Court. Well, so this is right up Michelle's uh, alley. And so, you know, we haven't had a chance to really introduce each other fully to our listening audience over the time that we've been doing this podcast. But I'm going to tell you that Michelle Jacobs is a full professor of law at the University of Florida College of Law, where she teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, white collar crime, international criminal law, and something that's very controversial today, critical race theory. She also taught at Rutgers School of Law in Newark, as well as the Howard University School of Law. Professor Jacobs' scholarship focuses on access to justice for communities that have been marginalized in the law. And in particular, she concentrates on how black women experience violence at the hands of the state, whether it's when they are accused of crime or a victim, victim of crime, or as victims of police violence. She tries to highlight the way Black women who are survivors of domestic violence are criminalized for daring to protect their own lives. And over the past year, she's been a frequent media commentator on police violence, particularly as it relates to police murders and sexual assaults of Black women and girls. 
but we've been blessed to share her scholarship and partner with her this past year on our podcast. Welcome, Professor Jacobs. Okay, guys, thanks for inviting me. And it's going to be fun to be on the other side of the mic for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and I know Katrina and I are going to pepper you with all kinds of great questions. So so we look forward to it. But, you know, so Michelle, to, to start, why don't, why don't you give our listening audience a sense of how and why social justice toward women of color is still very much misunderstood and as well underreported? Okay, so that's really two different areas of questioning. But I think for us, the important one is why it's underreported. Um, and that's because the press is not interested in the issues that impact Black women or, or Black girls either for that matter. So you may remember when uh, we're all old enough to remember when Nancy Grace used mm. to do her show where she would come on the show uh, and talk about all the blonde, haired, blue-eyed, missing white women. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, she would get all riled up and all week she was just talking about these blonde, haired, blue-eyed, white, missing women. And someone finally challenged her on why she never talked about any black missing women. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like one of those hot mic moments uh, where she didn't know her mic was still on. And she said, well, if a black woman is killed, who's interested in that? Bingo. <laughs> now, the, the, that's a terrible thing to say. But the truth of the matter is she was right. No one is interested when something happens to Black women and girls, and there's a whole historic reason for that. But in our society, even today, Black women are the second lowest level of women on the women totem pole, right? Um, Native American women hold the, the lowest position in terms of the things that happen to them that no one cares about. But after them, we're, we're right next. No one cares about what happens to us. And that has a lot to do with the legacy of slavery and um, the uh, stereotyped imaging that came uh, about Black women through the evolution from slavery and through Jim Crow until current times. But nonetheless, the media doesn't report it because they don't care about what happens to Black women. Mm. Given that the media doesn't care what happens to Black women, and that is going to really reflect what happens in society, you know, they're not interested because we all are the, the those who matter are not interested. What do you think, what kind of changes do you think would have to happen to make people interested and care about Black women? Okay, so I'm going to focus myself on my area, which is criminal justice, but it's um, so one, it's like an onion, right? <laughs> You've got the outside of the onion and then you have the inside of the onion and each piece has a lot of layers to it. So one, we'd have to be in a situation where we lived in a country that cared about women, period, right? And, mm -hmm. and we don't. The United States is a misogynistic nation. They don't care about any women. But if there is going to be a group of women that gets to be cared about for a few minutes, it's gonna be white women only. So there's that, there's the external piece, but there's also the internal piece. Um, and since our audience is primarily black, I'm gonna to speak to that piece because I don't often get a chance to talk to black people about this issue. There's always the question of whether we disrespect ourselves, right? So there, as any oppressed group, as we get told over and over that we are worthless, we can sometimes have elements of the community that absorb that 
self-hate, right? And they reflect it back to right. others in the right. community. So we actually have members of our own community that also don't care about what happens to Black women, right? And who, who may be responsible for harms that occur to Black women. So we've got that piece. Then we have what uh, myself and a lot of other scholars call the race loyalty piece, where the Black community is so inundated with hatred coming from all directions that we usually rally around the focal point of the main thrust of the hate, which is Black men. Mm. So the community invests its energy on protecting the imagery of Black men, even when that comes at a detriment to Black women. So uh, the two uh, most common and clear examples are the Clarence Thomas nomination for Supreme Court, where a Black woman came forward and said, this guy is a bad apple. He sexually harasses women and he sexually harassed me, a Black woman. Right. right? And the NAACP and a lot of other organizations said, no, we should support Clarence Thomas because the white people are attacking him. Right. Mm. Well, he harmed a Black woman. Right. But the community decided that he was the person to protect, not her. And you can see where that got us. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because in terms of for the images of black women, um, you talked about how important the society chooses the image of black men is more important than the image of black women. In one of your published pieces entitled Prostitutes, Drug Users and Thieves, the invisible women in the campaign to end violence against women. When you talk about how black women, the images are and how that impacts how we're treated, could you speak some to that? Sure, sure, sure. So the, there's four primary um, stereotypes that have followed black women um, coming up from out of our enslavement. Um, so the first one, and it's very contemporary today because now you hear, um, white Baptist ministers calling Kamala Harris a Jezebel, right? So all of a sudden Kamala Harris gets sworn in as vice president and now she's being called Jezebel. Well, Jezebel is the stereotype that has emerged about black women that says they're licentious, they have low morals, they will sleep with anything. And you can even find this kind of talk in Thomas Jefferson's writing notes on uh, Virginia, where he talks about the low sexual morals of African women. And that continues to follow us, right? Black women have low morals. They'll sleep with anybody. They'll entice anybody. Right, which he didn't mind taking full advantage of. Right, right, right. Whenever an adult male sexually assaults a black fe young female, even if it's a child, of course, it's the female's fault because of this Jezebel type nature she has. The, the other one is that, um, one of the other ones is that black women are liars, right? You can't believe anything they say. Uh, and that has come up from out of slavery as well, because Black people couldn't testify in court under oath uh, unless they were testifying against another Black person. They couldn't be called to uh, be witnesses, to bear witness against a white person. And the reason that is, is because Black women were thought to just lie at will. So, for example, when uh, Desiree Washington accused Mike Tyson of raping her in a hotel room, everyone said she's lying, right? Because that's what Black women do, <laughs> right? They lie. Um, the, the other, so the two other ones are that black women aren't really women, right? They're more man-like. <laughs> so if you, uh, if, if someone, if a black woman is claiming she's been injured, everyone thinks, well, she can't really, it's not really an injury because, you know, she can fight like a man, 
So um, she, she's just a mutual combatant of whomever she is fighting with. And you see, this comes back around to what happened to Micaiah Bryant, right? If we think right. about that, we can, we can tie it up at the end. Mm -hmm. A mutual combatant, she's just fighting, right? Like a man, she's dangerous, she has a knife and she's just fighting, presumably as the press says, for no reason. Of course, now we know there's a whole long backstory uh, to what the reason is. And the last one is that, um, which I don't find so much in the criminal justice context, but just to close out the discussion, is that black women as mammies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're there to nurture and protect uh, white children, white men, white people who are in distress. And we do that so well, we do it to the extent that we exclude uh, paying attention to our own children. Um, and this can come up sometimes in the context of the social services aspect of how we look at black women in terms of how they deal with their own children, which also came up in the Micaiah Bryant context, right? So you got, in her case, you have this uh, configuration of all of these things. So, so the problem with um, the women, with our women who have substance abuse or other kinds of issues, we're, we in our own community will engage with the stereotyping of black women so that we don't feel inclined to unify behind them when something terrible happens to them, right? So you, you, you have that stereotype going on. Now we can contrast that with what happens with black men. The stereotype about black men is that they're violent, brutal beasts, right? Right. Um, and, you know, it was just the anniversary of Tulsa, right? So we know that all these uh, massacres happen when there's a false accusation that some black male has raped or sexually touched in an offensive way some white woman. Mm -hmm. And so everyone starts attacking the black male as being this brute. And the community says, no, we've got to rally around that black male because they're, they're denigrating him. They're trying to uh, absorb him in this stereotype of the, the savage black brute. But for black women, we don't have something that everybody rallies around us in order to protect us when people are attacking us for that purpose. We're either liars or, you know, we have low moral values, you know, or, or um, we're, we're fighting like men, right? And mm -hmm. this also comes up in the domestic violence context. Now, one of the complicated pieces of that is that uh, when you get into more upper class, middle to upper class black society and church societies, there's a tendency for us to withdraw from support of women that fit those categories that we might be offended at. What, what accounts for that, Michelle? What do you think accounts for that? So, you know, we have to talk about, uh, the, the phrase has uh, gotten some abuse, but I think it fits for the moment. And it's called the politics of respectability, mm -hmm. which means that unless the woman who has come forward is somebody that we can hold up as a community on a pedestal, we feel like we can't afford to back that woman or to support her. And the, the clearest example I'll give you of that goes all the way back to the civil rights movement. When the first woman who's to refuse to give her seat up to a white person in the Montgomery uh, bus mm -hmm. was not Rosa, right? Right? Was not mm -hmm. Rosa Parks. It was mm -hmm. another black woman. But the problem was she had had a child out of wedlock, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so the church community, which is basically what the civil rights community was at that point, said we can't hold up, right? This right, girl, right, right, right. She's right. not. 
she'll come under too much scrutiny. Yeah, it's, you know, she's not the person we want to support for that. That woman was a warrior too, right? <laughs> she was a warrior too. She said, no, I'm not giving up. Mm -hmm. But she wasn't worthy of being the role model mm -hmm. in the way that Rosa Parks was worthy of being the role model. Now that's no knock on Rosa Parks. She was a you know, fabulous woman. But that's just to say within our own community, we sometimes will not rally around a black woman. Right. Once there's an allegation, either that she's a drug addict, she's a mm -hmm. prostitute, she has a criminal record, there's right. something there right. that makes the community not want to support her. Uh, you know what, and, and if you go back to, honestly, with Jackie Robinson being promoted to the major leagues, right? I mean, Jackie had to fit a particular profile right. before he was going to be able to break the color barrier. Right, right, right. But... But you see, our community would have rallied around Jackie Robinson no matter what. Correct. Right? Whether Correct. he fit the profile or not. But for Black women, we don't. And and the adultification um, issue that um, uh, Katrina was mentioning before we got on the air uh, has to do with the fact that white people can look at a Black child as young as, Black girl child, as young as five and see an adult. Mm -hmm. Right? So the, our, our kids aren't even allowed to be kids. Our girl children aren't allowed to be girls, right? And this is why adult males from outside of the community and within the community, to speak the truth, will try to uh, sexually harass or assault our very young girls because everyone's looking at them as if they're adults, when in fact they're just children. And mm -hmm. the police will constantly look at our young girls as adults. And this is why you see them being manhandled uh, on the street. You all remember that video where uh, the young teenagers were at the pool party in Texas. Right. And the cops came because some white person said, uh, believe they weren't entitled to be there. Right. Despite the fact that they were. Right. And, <laughs> and the cop tackled the that, young black teenager. Yeah, drags mm -hmm. that little black teenager right. who's wearing a bikini mm -hmm. across the concrete ground, right? right? Right. drags her like she's a grown person right so this is what we see over and over with our girls it's uh, unfortunately most people don't see it uh where it primarily happens which is in the schools but if you could see some of the videos of the mm -hmm. school police brutalizing our young girls it, it's mind-boggling right. there are too many examples of slavery i mean just one of the things because you know as during slavery time young girls starting at five you you had to get a job i right. mean you were working right. uh, you were not protected um, um once you were old enough that you could follow some directions in fact i had a great grandmother who didn't walk till she was four because she heard that if you started walking they would put you to work <laughs> so i mean just when you're talking about um how we've raised and how we've seen how we treated young black girls i mean even the fact that a lot of times in families sometimes the boys wouldn't even be given chores to do and the girls had to do the chores to take care of the boys and men in the family right so the things you're saying that we have imbibed some of the same um dangerous ways in which we have uh, treated young black girls and then when they become young black women, how do they outgrow that? Right, right. So you can't outgrow it, right? It just follows you. 
uh, on into adulthood. And you know, now because everybody's paying attention to self-care and mental health, uh, you'll see in a lot of the Black women's health sites, they're telling Black women to resist this notion that they can be uh, strong Black women all the time. You know, we're supposed to be super Black women because it, it, um, it coincides with this idea that Black women can't be vulnerable, right? So for example, in our domestic violence courts, when if you have a, a Black woman who's being brutalized by an intimate partner, when she goes to court, the judge will say to her, well, you don't, you know, you look, you look like a big woman. You look like you could take it as good as you can give it, right? But so where, where is that empathy for the woman who's being brutalized in her own home by an intimate partner? It's not there for us because they're looking at us like combatants, you know? You, you're, you, you can give as good as you can get, right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and often you'll see that a lot of the women who are incarcerated now, particularly for violent offenses, they are domestic violence survivors who are being punished because they refuse to allow themselves to be killed by an intimate partner and they fought back. But the courts, the police, the prosecutors, they all look at them as combatants, not victims the way they do white women who are being beat by their intimate partners. You know, uh, that takes us to Michelle, uh, one of your papers. Um, you talked about violence black women experience at the hands of law enforcement. And then in the larger picture, you talk about violence against black women as longstanding, pervasive, persistent, and multi-layered, yet few legal actors seem to care about it. Right. So kind of give us, you know, uh, you know, how did you come about? How did you get to that evaluation about uh, violence against Black women? Right. So uh, before people started, uh, well, I should say larger numbers of people should started paying attention to what was happening with police violence. I was already looking at uh, coming, out, coming out of a practice in New York. You know, it's, it's really apparent <laughs> how race plays a role in uh, Black people and their uh, prosecution in the criminal justice system and subsequent incarceration. So at that time, the sentencing guidelines had just come in and the war on drugs was really hot, right? Mm -hmm. So we noticed that so many women were being prosecuted by Rudy Giuliani's office. And it started out with they were being prosecuted to force their husbands, who were the real targets or their boyfriends, to take pleas. But then it, it just sort of morphed into its own level of prosecution. So most of the uh, Black and Latino women in federal prison got there because of the war on drugs. They were either, um, you know, they lived in a house where drugs might have been sold. Mm -hmm. um, and they would be convicted of things, of being part of a drug conspiracy for things like uh, handing their significant other uh, box of Reynolds wrap, right? And the government would twist that into uh, their a partner in this drug conspiracy or mm -hmm. answering the telephone even or opening the door, right? This all became part of the drug conspiracies. So, you know, that doesn't happen for white women. When Bernie Madoff uh, made off with all his millions in the Ponzi scheme, I'm sitting on the TV at the TV waiting for the indictment to come down against his wife, who sometimes worked in the office. And, right? but that's and you the, were waiting for Godot. <laughs> yeah, that was not going to happen because they don't perceive white women. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the issue, the response from the prosecutors always is, well, how would she have known 
that her husband was making the money illegally. Right. Well, how would the sister living in, you know, wherever, up in Manhattan, how would she have known <laughs> that her boyfriend was making money illegally, right? So the same uh, considerations for white women um, don't play out for black women. But then while I was, uh, while I was teaching at Howard, I had a brilliant law student named Andrea Ritchie, who uh, even before she came to law school was looking at the issue of police violence against uh, black women and, and queer people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, actually she, she, as my student, this is the wonderful thing about teaching. Sometimes your students can open your eyes to something new too. Mm -hmm. So um, she, she, you know, we, we talked, we were uh, talking about the domestic violence aspect of it. And then she, you know, opened the door for me on the police violence aspect of it. And she's today is the leading expert on police violence against black women. Fantastic. And, uh, gender non-conforming people. But after that, I became interested, more interested in specifically looking at how criminal law was impacting Black women, and then how, uh, in general, state violence was impacting Black women. Now, I'm on the criminal justice field, but state violence, you know, is foster care, it's uh, welfare, it's all those social services that are provided to Black women, and there's violence in that. Mm -hmm. um, but on my side of it, you know, I was looking at the criminal justice side. And this issue of police killing Black women and it not going noticed was terrible. So right here in Washington, D.C., we had a case, Miriam Carey, where uh, the sister drove down from New York. She was having some mental health issues. She had her infant child in the car and she made a wrong turn right. uh, into a secured, a secured street when she right. tried to U-turn and get out of it. I think it was in front of the White House. Was, was it in front of the White House? Yeah, shot right. up her car right. and killed her with the baby mm -hmm. in the back seat. Back seat, yep. Right? I forgot how many bullets they fired into the car, 18, mm -hmm. 19, 20, something like that. And it was, you could see the baby, right? Strapped mm -hmm. up into the, into the back seat of the car and they mm -hmm. killed her anyway. Uh, she didn't hurt anybody. She didn't hurt the president. She didn't threaten anybody. Uh, and in one of my pieces, I pointed out that in the last 20 years, there's been no one killed for making a wrong turn into the White House. And even the man who took a rifle and shot into the White House while the Obama family was Correct. there Correct. was captured without injury. Right. But this one woman who made a traffic mistake mm -hmm. was shot down in cold blood by yep. the Capitol Police, right? Yep. And no one cared about it. You know why? Because the media started saying, oh, she had mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So here we go, back mm -hmm. around. Yep. Oh, she's not perfect. Right. This is not somebody we should rally around. She had mm -hmm. mental health issues, y'all. No, she was killed in cold blood by right. the Capitol Police. Right. He okay. may have also yeah. had mental yeah. health issues, yeah. but she was killed for a traffic offense. Right. Right. And then you had Sandra Bland and on and on it goes. You know, mm -hmm. we have Breonna Taylor who was murdered this year, but there's over a hundred black women who had black women and girls because Ayanna uh, Presley Johnson, who was mm -hmm. nine when she was killed by the police in Detroit, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there are any number of black women who are killed by the police and it never reaches the media's attention in a way that can help people to rally around them. And then we, of course, we have the issue of whether or not they're perfect women. And on that note, we're going to take the time out to conclude this first part 
of our episode on Black Women's Struggle for Social Justice with my regular co-host, Professor Michelle Jacobs, and my guest co-host, Dr. Katrina Peters. Be sure to watch, though, for our next installment, where we will conclude this important discussion. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nubian Tigers, written as one word. We're also on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. Our podcast is hosted by Anchor FM, but if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Just look for Nubian Tigers Talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.